And I hope that Jesus forgives him just like he does the rest of us. Doug Wilson, Moscow minister and columnist with the Idahonian Daily News. The question that confronts us is what does it mean in a disobedient culture to be prophetic? There be a place for same-sex couples? Uh, no, no marriage. Even though it's the law of the land in the United States? Uh, just like Roe used to be. We want to turn the world upside down, and you don't turn the world upside down by being nice. I believe that we are in, in this polytheistic, pluralistic moment, and the desperate need of the hour is for our Christian leadership to say, Jesus is Lord, and there is no other. Hey y'all, welcome to Cross Politics on the Fight Lab Feast Network. Have you got your Maca hat yet? Do you know Go nobody? to RoddyChristian.com, get your Maca hat. Also, we got What's um, Maca? A Maca Make America Christian Again. Oh, that's what that's, okay. what, that's the I Maca. Like that. that's I like that. Yeah. Nobody understood this show's gonna be hot. They have no reference for that. That's the AC's right. broken here, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. AC's that's broken. Right. AC Pastor Toby Chalk Knox, I'm the water boy. Also, have you signed up for the Fight Life Feast conference? I don't even know if that's our plug yet. It is. is. It's it is. the one that I'm going to read. Okay, well, go ahead. Yeah, I will. <laughs> he wears the hat I, I, and loses I, I, it. I will, for real. It's already gone to his head. This year, our Fight Life Feast conference is at the Ark Encounter Ooh. in Kentucky. Noah's boat. The theme for the conference is, thank you, Gabe. <laughs> Ken, Ken doesn't like it being called a boat. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he's going to check you for no, that one. Noah's boat? Yeah. He's like, don't call it. It's not a boat. It's a ship. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. The politics of six-day creation. The politics of six-day creation is the difference between a fixed standard of justice That's right. and a careening standard of justice. It's the difference between the corrosive relativism that creates mobs and anarchy and the freedom of objectivity, truth, and due process. The politics of six-day creation establishes the authority and sufficiency of God's word for all of life. From questions like what is a man or what is a woman, when does human life begin, and how is human society best organized for human flourishing? Come here, Ken Ham, Pastor Doug Wilson, Dr. Ben Merkel, Dr. Gordon Wilson of Riot the dance fame. Uh, we have Joe Rigney coming. Uh, I'll, I'll be giving a talk. We'll be doing, of course, a live cross-politic show um, at the end of the conference. So mark your calendars for October 11th through the 14th as we fight, laugh, and feast, kicking it all off with beer and psalms. Mm. Uh, amazing lineup of speakers, rowdy Christian merch where you can presumably buy a bunch Maca. of Maca hats. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we'll have a Sabbath feast to wrap everything up on Saturday afternoon. Uh, visit fightlaughfeast.com. And find out about it and sign up for it. That's right. Today, do we have all the talks up there? Everybody's gonna be talking about. Is that up there on the a website? A lot of a lot of the talks. Um, oh, I have to check. Is, I is, know we have a lot of the talks figured out for everybody. I want to talk I, to Joe. I want to talk. Bring Joe, Joe on the show. I want to know what he's gonna talk yeah. about. Yeah, well, just that's interesting. Do, do, do a little He'll be here in about a month. Appetizer. Okay. <laughs> do a little appetizer with yeah, him. Yeah, I think that'd yeah. be great. Hey, we're really grateful to have Dr. Anthony Levitino on the show today. He's practiced obstetric. Obstetrics, my goodness. I, I, uh, I'm rubbing just, off. I'm yeah, rubbing yeah. off. Yeah. Uh, how would you say that word, Gabe? No, no, no. no, no. no <laughs> uh, gynecology since 1980, when I was born. 
As a part of his medical training, Dr. Levitino was taught to do abortions. Dr. Levitino provided abortions for his patients in his office for eight years. Wow. And in 1985, he quit doing abortions and is now in private practice. Uh, And um, thanks for joining us, Dr. Anthony. Happy to be here. Um, Can you tell us a story of how you changed your mind and stopped performing abortions? I'm going to describe what it's like to do an abortion. And the reason I'm going to do that is because the story is not going to make a lot of sense unless you get a sense of what that feels like. Mm-hmm. Imagine you're, you're, you're an obstetrician gynecologist like me, and you're a pro-choice obstetrician gynecologist like I used to be. Her, your patient today is 17 years old. She's 20 weeks pregnant. Her uterus is all the way up to umbilical. Like it would be the length of your hand from the tip of your middle finger to your wrist. That's head to rump, 20-week baby, not counting the legs. She's been feeling the baby kick for the last two weeks, but now she's asleep on an operating room table, and you're there to help her with her problem. Mm. You walk into the operating room, and your patient's on the operating table. To the right is a, a table of instruments. And the first thing you reach for is a suction catheter. This is a 14 French suction catheter. It's about 10 inches long clear plastic, and picture yourself putting this up through the cervix and and, uh, asking the circulating nurse to turn on the suction. And what you'll see is pale yellow fluid running out of the tubing into the machine. If the baby were only 12 to 13 weeks pregnant, that that baby would be the width of your hand or smaller. You could pretty much do the entire abortion with this one instrument. Mm. Babies this big don't, don't fit through catheters this size. So you're going to ask for your sofa clamp. You, this is uh, one that I own. It's never been used in an abortion, but it's the identical instrument I used for years. It's about 13 inches long, stainless steel. The business end is about two and a half inches wide, or excuse me, two and a half inches long and about a half inch wide. And there are rows of sharp teeth on this. This is a grasping instrument. When it gets a hold of something, it does not let go. A second trimester d abortion that I used to do, amongst others, uh was a blind procedure we didn't use ultrasound you could but frankly it doesn't help much Uh, so picture yourself putting this up through the cervix be very careful not to perforate the walls because they're thin and soft and blindly grab anything you can and pull hard and i mean hard and out pops a leg about that big which you put down on the table next to you and reach in with the instrument again grasp pull hard Out comes an arm about the same length, which you put down on the table next to you. Reach in with the same instrument again and again and tear out the spine, the intestines, the heart and lungs. Head on a baby that size, about size plumb. And I see it again, you're doing this blind, but pretty sure you've got it if your instrument's around something and your fingers are spread as far as it will go. You know you did it right if you crush down on the instrument and white material runs out of the cervix. That was the baby's brains. Now you can pull out skull pieces. Mm. Sometimes a little face comes back and stares back at you. Congratulations. You just successfully performed a second trimester d abortion. You just affirmed to right to choose. You just made, in today's dollars, the equivalent of over $2,300 legally in 15 minutes. That's what a second trimester d abortion is like to do. That's firsthand experience. I've done over 100 of them. 
Well, I graduated from medical school in 1976. And if you asked me at the time how I felt about the abortion issue, I would not have hesitated for a second to tell you I was pro-choice. This was a decision between a woman or doctor and no one, including the baby's father, had anything to say about it. You know, a lot of people identify themselves as pro-life or pro-choice. But for a lot of people, it doesn't really affect their lives. It doesn't even affect how they vote. But when you're an obstetrician gynecologist and you say you're pro-choice, this isn't some vague political position. You have to decide whether you're going to actually do those procedures. So in my training program as a resident, I'm learning you know, right along with learning how to do deliveries and hysterectomies and all the things that OBGYNs do. I learned to do first and second trimester abortions. At the time, there was no chemical or medical abortion. It was all surgical. So if patients were 12 to 13 weeks, we would book them for suction DNC abortions. There's still a fair number of those being done, although medical abortion really has taken over, and we need to talk about that later. Um, but, and it was when it was my turn to do them, believe it or not, we did them at the time in the delivery room. I would do two, three, four in the morning, never thought anything of it. If they were more than 13 weeks pregnant at the time, we would, there was, we weren't doing DEs yet. We used to do saline abortions. I won't go through that. They're not done anymore, but suffice it to say that these women had to go through labor. It would take anywhere from eight to 36 hours for them to deliver their usually dead children. But as I said, I was pro-choice and every doctor, and I always say this, and, and people find it hard to believe, but it's true. Every doctor, abortionist, not wants the same thing. Happy, healthy patients. I met my wife in the hospital. She was a specialist nurse uh, specializing in renal transplanting, uh, which was one of the very first programs in the country. And she was one of the first people trained to do that back in the late 70s in Albany, New York. And we met in the cafeteria one night, dated and got married about a year later. Now, she was definitely pro-life. Um, New York had legalized abortion three years before Roe versus Wade. That's right. And when she had been approached as a, as a medical, as a nursing student and asked if she would assist at these procedures, she said, absolutely not. She would have nothing to do with it. And that was the end of it as far as she was concerned uh, until we met. Now, obviously, it didn't take very long to find out that we were on opposite sides of the issue. And that's when we made the first most basic and most, frankly, idiotic decision that we could ever make. And instead of hashing it out, a pattern that lasted way too long in our marriage, we got married. And like a lot of other young couples, we wanted to have children of our own, but found out very quickly that she had an infertility problem. We weren't getting pregnant. And I sent her to the best infertility specialist in town. Um, any woman who's been through an infertility workup knows that it is difficult, painful, uh, embarrassing. And she would come home from those visits, lock herself in the bathroom and cry because there were two ironies that were not lost on her. One, here she is married to an OBGYN and she can't get pregnant. Two, here she is trying to have a baby and her husband's killing babies and abortions. But she would push that thought out as fast as it would come on. I said to her, you know, her doctor told us that there was one more procedure he could try. It should take about an hour and a half. And he walked out of the operating room four and a half hours later. I can still see the room. I can still see him. And he went up to me, he came to me and he said, look, I never tell anyone that they're not going to have children of their own, but don't count on it. Well, we were devastated. We both came from large families and we wanted a family of our own. After we got over that shock, we decided, okay, we'll adopt a child. I mean, 
we'd be perfectly happy to adopt a baby and love that child as our own. Anyone who's tried to adopt a baby knows how difficult that is. We went to religious agencies, county agencies, you know, state agencies, anyone we could find. And the best we could do after months of effort was to get on a five-year waiting list to get on the actual waiting list. Mm. Um, and it was during that time that I had my first doubts about abortion. It was strictly selfish. Um, I'm not an idiot. I know why there were so few babies to adopt. And it was a weird existence. As I said, I was dedicated pro-choice, and I was dedicated. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, I remember doing a particular abortion. And, and of course, whenever you do any abortion, you have to make sure you get all the pieces. And I remember going through that, that bag. It was a suction DNC and thinking, gosh, I'm throwing you home and care for as our own. But of course, it doesn't work that way. After months and months and months of this, I came up with what my wife still credits as the best idea I've ever come up with in our entire relationship, other than my asking her to marry me. <laughs> and that was, hey, look, this is stupid. We're getting nowhere in the normal channels. I know 50 obstetricians on a first name basis. Let's advertise. Let's let them know we're looking for a baby. Maybe, maybe we'll get lucky. Some kid will fall through the cracks and we'll be able to get a private adoption. And that's what we did. In August of, of 1978, um, we, uh, I was working in the operating room doing a case with an attending physician. I got tapped on the shoulder by the circulating nurse. And when I turned around, she was holding up a piece of paper that said, call Marsha as soon as you're done. Now, Marsha was head of the social services at the hospital where I worked. That's all of my message said, but I knew what it meant. And sure enough, she informed me that there was a 15 year old girl in labor in the delivery room. She'd had no prenatal care. Um, the first time she'd seen a doctor was the day before, mm. but she's healthy. The baby looks healthy. She wants to give her baby up for adoption. Are you interested? Well, of course I was interested. I remember literally staring at the face of the telephone to call my wife at the snooze and know I was just seven digits away from becoming a father. Mm. And literally by the grace of God, we were able to adopt a little girl that we named Heather in August of 1978. Wow. Mm. Fantastic. We finally have a baby. After all the years, after all the tears, after all the doubts, we had a daughter, and my wife got pregnant the very next month. And uh, our son, Sean, was born in July 1979, barely, it was only 10 months later. Wow. Well, you know, anyone who didn't know that Heather and Heather and Sean were figuratively and literally close, they were only 10 months apart. Anyone who didn't know Heather was adopted would look at the two of them and go, my God, 10 months apart. You didn't give your wife much of a break, did you? <laughs> but, hey, I've got the proverbial millionaire's family. I've got a son and a daughter. And any doubts I had about abortion simply evaporated. The in and that was the way it was. Everything was just wonderful. You know, we're finally making some money. We can afford a home. Everything's doing just great until until June 23rd, 1984. June 23rd was a, a Saturday. It was a beautiful day in Albany. It was uh, sunny, warm, but not too hot. Um, I was on call, but it wasn't very busy. I made rounds and got to spend the rest of the day with my family. Heather was exactly two months away from her sixth birthday. Sean was just a few days away from his fifth birthday. We took the kids to an amusement park that afternoon. We had dinner together. And that, that evening, the kids were playing in the backyard when we had friends come for cake and coffee. Uh, we were talking with our friends and at 725 that night, we heard the screech of brakes out in front of the house. The kids had gone on the road and Heather had been hit by a car. She was a mess. 
we ran out and did everything we could. I mean, I'm a doctor. I'm supposed to be able to save people's life. My wife was an intensive care nurse. This was our work. But it made absolutely no difference. And she literally died in our arms in the back of an ambulance that night. Mm. Now, anybody listening to this who has children may think you have some idea of what that might be like. If you haven't been through this yourself, you haven't got a bloody clue. I hope you never find out. But what do you do after a disaster? You bury your child, you take some time off, then you try to get back into your life. And I don't remember exactly how long it was after Heather's death, but I showed up at OR number nine at Albany Medical Center in Albany, New York, just like I had over 100 times before for a second trimester d abortion. I wasn't thinking of this as anything special. It was routine. I had other things on my mind. And I started that abortion, and I reached in with that sofa clamp, and I ripped out an arm or a leg, and I just stared at it in the clamp, and I got sick. You know something, though? When you start an abortion, you can't stop. You have to get two arms, two legs, and all the pieces because you have to keep inventory. You have to make sure you literally get all the pieces because if you don't, your patient will come back infected, bleeding, or dead. So I finished that abortion, and I know it sounds strange, but I promise everyone who's listening, everything I'm telling you is firsthand and true. For the first time in my career, after all those abortions, in all that time, I looked, I mean, I really looked that pile of hearts on the side of the table. And I didn't see your wonderful right to choose. I didn't see the $2,300 I just made in 15 minutes. All I could see was somebody's son or daughter. And it occurred to me in that moment that this patient had come to me, figuratively, never literally, and said, here's $2,000, kill my son or daughter. And I was the kind of person that would look her right in the eye with no compunction whatsoever and say, sure, I'll do that. <laughs> Needless to say, we were in a crisis. I told you before, you know, and I was, I mean, I, I, I knew how I felt, but I'm still dedicated to the whole abortion thing. I'll get over this. And I soldiered on. Uh, but my, it was obviously a very, very difficult to talk about the abortion issue. The problem with that is when you get used to not talking about one issue, sometimes you're not talking about other issues you should be talking about. And we've been drifting apart. And now with Heather's death, everything broke wide open. Um, I was angry. I was just angry. Uh, people would come to try to comfort us, and I, I just cannot tell you how difficult it is. But I got into a blame game. I was feeling bad about the whole thing, and I got into a blame game. See, it was the girl's fault for getting pregnant. It was the hospital's fault for allowing me. It was the nurse's fault for scheduling. It's everybody else's fault but mine. Isn't that the way it always is? And after a couple of months of that, my wife had had it up to here. And even though I even though I say, you know, we didn't talk about some important topics, it's not like we never talked. I mean, I'm full blooded Sicilian. She's full blooded Irish. Trust me, we've had discussions, <laughs> but she had it up to there after a few months of that. And um, she started she started and she broke our unspoken rule and started talking about it. She said, you know what? It's not the girl's fault and it's not the hospital's fault. And it's not the nurse's fault. You stupid idiot. If you're feeling so bad about this, why don't you just quit? And that was the opening salvo in a two-hour conversation about abortion and a lot of other things. And I'm glad to say she didn't leave. But the next day, I went to my partners and I told them I would no longer do any more second Mr. Dini abortions. It was just too difficult. See, we were getting referrals from other doctors. Nobody in the town wanted to do that procedure, but my partner and I were willing to do them. 
Um, so it was a big deal. But I saw I would no longer do any more DEs. I would just do the little ones, the suction DNCs we were doing in the office. And for a few months, I soldiered on doing those. You know, I, I know people think doctors are smart. We're no different than anybody else. When we finally figure out that killing a baby this big for money is wrong, it doesn't really matter. And 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 unless you know, if the baby's this big, this big, or even this big, it's all the same. Right. You know, I occasionally get a chance to present in schools and especially colleges. And I remind them because it's so easy to talk about what you do with someone else's life. But, you know, today you're an adult. Once you were a child, you didn't look anything like you look today. Once you were a baby yourself, once you were this big, but it was always you. After her death, when I finally went to my partners a second time, told them I would no longer do any more abortions. And I never did another one after that. Wow. Dr. Anthony. Um, wow. That's incredible incredible um but what is how does your christian faith like play into this because it's not just good enough to stop doing abortions you know it 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 has to be that sin has to be dealt with um how did did you become a christian through this process like like how did that get connected to all this well, understand, I was, you know, my wife and I had been raised in a church tradition, as most people our age were, um, but it was never very meaningful, particularly. Um, and I was raised in the Catholic Church. We were both raised in the Catholic Church. But, you know, and it was, we had drifted away from that for, you know, for a lot of reasons that we won't get into. Um, stop doing abortions. That's why I quit. Get involved in the pro-life movement? Not a chance. See, everyone in every abortionist knows that everyone involved in the pro-life movement is a kook. I know this because CNN tells me so, and they would never lie to me. Right. <laughs> um, this, you know, 1983, I'm still doing abortions on a regular basis. I arrive at my office, and I see something no abortionist wants to see. We're being picketed by the local Christian crazies. <laughs> we didn't have our names on the signs, but obviously, we're the only abortionists in the building, so we know they're there for us. Wow. And it was during the and, and people ask all the time, what's it like when we're picketing outside your office? I'll tell, them, I'll tell you what it's like. It's just siege mentality. It's us against you coops outside. Um, but it was during that time that I got a new patient. Her name was Susan. She was in her mid-30s, didn't even come up to my shoulders. Um, routine GYN exam and pap smear, nothing special. And when it was over, she sits down, she looks at me, and she goes, Can I talk to you? And Doctors know this is not that unusual. A lot of patients, and I think especially new patients, and especially in gynecology, won't tell you what's really on their mind until they develop some level of trust. So this wasn't all that unusual. And I looked at this lady and asked her, what, what can I do for you? And she blew me away when she said, I've been sent here to give you a message that Jesus loves you. He cares about you. This is not what he had intended for your life to be an abortionist. Please stop. <laughs> well, doctors listen to their patients. No patient had ever spoken to me that way. Wow. One overwhelming thought when she said that, and that was, I've got to hustle this kook out of my office as fast as I could. And I did. <laughs> A year later, she showed up again for her routine GYN exam pap smear. And when it was over, she said, can I talk to you? And oh, no. <laughs> uh, I, mean, I remembered what she said. And it's not, and, and understand, it's not like we never darkened the inside of a church. But Christians who were very demonstrative about their faith always made me really uncomfortable. And she said the same thing, almost word for word. 
I've been sent here to give you a message that Jesus loves you. He cares about you. This is not what he had intended for your life to be an abortionist. Please stop. Now, like I said, I remembered what she had said. But not only that, in the intervening year, I had received at least three personal greeting cards marked confidential with the message written on the card. One time during the intervening year, I arrived at my office and there was a plate of brownies sitting on my desk with the message tied to the brownies. Now, she's not stupid. She knew what I thought. How long would you evangelize someone that thought you were nuts? Mm. She kept it up for seven years. Wow. But what happened, see, we we walked, I won't, I, I don't want to take too much time, but we walked into, we were invited to a pro-life potluck dinner about eight months after I stopped doing abortions. And I laughed. I literally told my wife, well, I don't want to go to some pro-life dinner with a bunch of kooks. But we, you know, we were, it was on the road to where we were going that night. We had another commitment. And I just thought, you know, just for giggles, let's stop at the pro-life potluck dinner. And we walked in and, you know, everybody looked up and the place went dead quiet. I mean, I had no, it looked like a scene in a bad movie. I, I mean, <laughs> I didn't, had no idea these people knew who I was, but they did. And some of them didn't know I was doing, wasn't doing abortions. I didn't take out an ad. I just quit. Yeah. Um, we ended up spending an hour and a half in the pro-life potluck dinner. Guess what? These people weren't nuts. They understood the medicine. They understood the law. They were giving of themselves, you know, voluntarily and sacrificially to stop one of the worst human rights abuses of our time. And we ended up joining that a pro-life group. And it was sometime after that that we started speaking. Now, with the partners, not doing abortions, they understood what had happened to Heather. They understood that. But get involved in the pro-life movement, this was not cool. Uh, we lost every friend we had. Mm. If phones, phones stopped ringing, invitations dried up. God was good. He filled our lives with pro-life Christian friends who all became models for us. He put 100 people in front of us. But I always tell one story. I left my practice in uh, August of 1980. I actually went to law school. Uh, but um, a, a few weeks after that, I went to across the state line into Vermont and did a presentation in a high school gymnasium on a Saturday morning. Maybe 50 people showed up. When it was over, this nice lady, she was, again, short woman in her 70s, coming up, chattering away at high speed, being very gracious. So thank you so much for coming and giving your presentation. Isn't it beautiful what Jesus is doing in your life? And I'm going, oh, God, no, no, not another one. <laughs> and, and I felt like a fraud. I mean, I didn't want to be something this lady didn't, I, you know, that I didn't want to think or make her think it was something that I wasn't. And I looked at her and stammered like an idiot and said, well, ma'am, or, uh, you know, um, I don't feel about, <clears throat> I don't feel about Jesus the way you do. And I'll never forget. Um, she stopped chattering. Um, her, uh, she gets a big smile on her face. She looks up and she says, he knows you, sweetie. He's going to get you sooner or later. And she walked away. <laughs> and it was very soon after that, that we found ourselves a Bible believing church and we found Jesus and he, you know, he, we finally found him. He'd found us a long time before. And that's how it all started. You know, doc, I, I, I yeah. have so many questions, but man, first of all, this is an amazing story. Yeah. I I have to ask, though, if you had to go back and talk to yourself, you know, in the mid-70s as you're pro-choice, flaming pro-choicer. You're in med school. Yeah, you're in med <laughs> school. Um, because it seems like I, I would have to imagine you've heard all the arguments for pro-life even then. They, they were there. But it just didn't just didn't snap into place. Is there anything you could have said to yourself differently now that would have woken you up back then or you know, that's a great question, but I suppose every, you know, all of us are not particularly young. 
um, ask yourself that question. What, you know, we've all done things in our lives we wish we hadn't done. And I'm not so sure if, if somebody could have talked me out of it. I mean, as I said, I was very, I was very dedicated to the idea. I'm pro-choice. This, this makes perfect sense. Um, and took it that one step further to actually doing the abortions. But would that make a difference? I don't know. You know, uh, right now, I mean, I'm retired. I, I, I retired from clinical practice five years ago, but I still teach in medical college. And part of the reason I do that is because I think it's important for students to see and interact with pro-life physicians. Yeah. And it's really interesting. How, you know, how many obstetrician gynecologists do abortions? Answer, over 85% of obstetrician gynecologists refuse to do abortions. Wow. That number has been documented three times in the last 10 years with peer-reviewed uh, journal studies. Um, and, and so the vast majority of doctors don't, but medical students can feel very isolated and pressured. Um, so I think it's important that they see and interact with pro-life physicians and understand you are not the minority, you are the majority. Um, so would, could I, could, you know, could I, you know, if it's the old thing, you know, if I knew then what I know now, yeah. haven't we all said that one time or another? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if I could have made a difference or not. It's a great question. For, for me, it would have been a two by four. <laughs> so that's what you needed. It's not so much what you could say to me. It's you just had to hit me with the two by four. Do, doc, well, it was a two by four for me too. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, doctor. Uh, you said um, in the in the as you were describing abortions, you, you mentioned briefly that you wanted to get to talking about medical abortion. Oh boy, the majority of abortions now are being done with quote, medical abortions. Um, there is so much going on. You could do an entire show on it. Um, I don't know how much time we've got here, but uh, I'm just going to keep talking until somebody gives me the hook. Oh, you're not here. Good. Okay. Um, no, um, chemical abortion is really interesting. As I said earlier, abortions were suction beans and DNEs for abortions. Then there's even later abortions. We haven't even had time to go into that. Um, you should see the material I've got on that. You won't mm. believe it. Uh, but chemical abortion is really the story now. The majority of abortions are being done that way. That, that number flipped last year, and it's just going to keep going up. So FDA pushed this certification of RU46 Mifeprex through very quickly. And there's even a lawsuit going on now over that certification. Uh, you may have heard of it. Um, and so now you don't don't need any surgical skill to do an abortion. All you all I have to do be able to do is write a prescription. You training pediatricians, family doctors, um, internists, anybody else who's perfect. And, and they're not all doctors, by the way. Um, some of them, you know, as I said, are are, are lower level or mid level medical providers like physicians assistants. All you have to do is write a prescription. Easy peasy. Of course, the question becomes, yeah, yeah, but 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 what happens when they have complications? And happens in the vast majority of cases when these people have complications and they do have complications you get you know you call your provider uh i can't even say doctor anymore at two in the morning and say you know i'm running 103 fever and i've got this severe pain and i'm bleeding you know what the response you're likely to get is in most cases go to the emergency yeah, room right. this is called patient dumping and it seems like the abortion industry and the American College of Obstetrician Gynecologists has absolutely no problem with this kind of dumping thing. Just dump the problem on somebody else's lap. Uh, this is this is just ethically atrocious, absolutely atrocious. But it goes beyond that. 
FDA changed its regulations on abortion again on the pill, um, abortion pill, this January, just a few months ago. Mm. And it's still, and, and now, oh, you don't even have to see the doctor in person. No problem. Uh, you could do it over a video link. In fact, there are businesses. Hey Jane is one of them, is the one I know about uh, that I've looked at their website. There are others where you can simply, you know, dial in just like we're doing now, and we can have a little chat. And when it's over, after I ask you some questions, I can write a prescription, and you can pick up the uh, Mifeprex at your local pharmacy. That's another one of the changes that occur in January, and that's in New Mexico. And what happens when you have complications? You know, two um, percent of the time prior to seven weeks of gestation, which was the original um, certification line for Mifeprex, two percent of those abortions fail, and the patient ends up needing another procedure, more medication, or possibly a suction DNC to complete the abortion. Then FDA changed the certification. Now they can do medical abortions certified up to ten weeks. Except nobody wants to emphasize that now, once, once you increase the gestational age, the failure rate goes up. And upwards of 8% of patients are going to need a surgical procedure or an ER visit for hemorrhaging. Or there are other problems as that gestational age increases. There are some practitioners are even using it beyond 10 weeks, even though it's only certified to 10 weeks. Doctors can do that. Um, we do that with all kinds of drugs legally. Um, you have to, and FDA was very clear, even early on, and again, recertified in January. If you look at their website, you must absolutely positively be able to date a pregnant pregnancy accurately. You cannot, because errors are common. I won't get into why, but they just are. And how do you do that? You do a pregnancy test. You do, it's called an exam. Okay, and then you know how far along your patient is. If you're if you have doubt as to her gestational age, you do an ultrasound. That's how you date a pregnant and a pregnancy accurately. Now, I asked my colleagues, including those in ACOG, how exactly do you do that on a video call? Um, it can't be done. It is ab the use of mifeprex or the abortion pills absolutely contraindicated in an ectopic pregnancy. An ectopic pregnancy is a pregnancy that is not in the uterus where it belongs. It could be in the cervix, the ovary, but most commonly it's in the fallopian tubes between the ovaries and the uterus. And these can be, these are dangerous. Fallopian tubes are thin and soft. They are not designed to hold a pregnancy and the, that pregnancy will grow until the tube ruptures. And then your patient can hemorrhage and possibly even die. Every gynecologist has dealt with hundreds of ectopic pregnancies. It's pretty common. In fact, upwards of 2% of pregnancies are ectopic pregnancies. How do, you, how do you diagnose or rule out an ectopic pregnancy? Well, you know your patient's dates. You do an, oh, it's called an exam. And then you see if there's a mass on one side or if the patient has pain or if there's some other reason you suspect things aren't right. And then you order an ultrasound. To, to localize where is the pregnancy? Is the pregnancy in the uterus where it belongs or is it in the tube? As I said, one in 50 patients has an ectopic pregnancy. Again, I asked my colleagues, how do you do that on a video mm. link? It's impossible. 
And one in 50 people that are calling you and are showing up on your video screen are carrying ectopic pregnancies, and you are endangering them by giving them the abortion pill regimen with Mifeprex. This is what's, oh, one other thing. When the first time a patient comes in, whether they want an abortion or a delivery, I'm checking their blood type and what's called their their antibody titers. You know, do they are they have, have they ever been exposed to if a patient is Rh negative, has she been ever been exposed to Rh positive blood products that can occur during a pregnancy, for instance, or a miscarriage, or an abortion, or a, even more commonly a delivery. We check that the very first day anybody comes in, either for an abortion or for pregnancy care. And if she is, if she's not sensitized, then we give her a medication called Rogam to prevent her from becoming sensitized. Because if she's Rh negative, has an abortion or a miscarriage or a delivery, okay, she can become sensitized to Rh positive blood, and that won't show up until you do the until the next pregnancy when she comes in and you check those titers. But you can give her medication to prevent that. How do you how do you know whether a patient is Rh negative? Fifteen percent of Caucasian patients are Rh negative. Eight percent of Black patients are Rh negative. Okay, how do you know whether or not she's Rh negative? So that once you've given her your abortion pill on a video link and then forgotten about her, and she has her her abortion either in her bathroom or her bedroom or in a hospital, depending on what happens. And nobody knows what her that she's Rh negative and gives and do, nobody gives her Rogam to prevent her from becoming sensitized to Rh positive blood products. Then she has a problem that if she does become sensitized, that can attack any future pregnancy, mm. included a wanton pregnancy. Wow. These are so many problems with abortion pills. It's absurd. Yet we're being told this is absolutely perfectly safe. This is so safe you can do it on a video. This is insane. So, Dr. Uh, Anthony, I want to end, end with a uh, – we really appreciate your time and, and story here. But I want to end kind of practically. Um, how do you counsel mothers who've aborted babies in the past? How, um, how do you not let Satan um, get a hold of that sin and, and keep it and hang it over your head? I've seen it a thousand times. Um it's a lot what I like I went through. I mean, how, you know, why do I do what I do? Why do we, you know, why do my wife and I get up in front of pregnancy center, you know, dinners and, and raise money and, and go to the March for Life and testify in front of Congress? And how do you make up for 1,200 dead kids, which is what I did in my career? Obviously, you can't do that. Um, you can only find forgiveness through through Jesus and then understand and then accept had abortions um they you know they may even have you know they understand you know jesus loves them they've accepted christ uh, they know all of these things but they're still suffering and you know why there's one person in the world that hasn't forgiven them and it's them um and that's the part that's very difficult and they need support they need counseling they need to know that people care and that's exactly why the pregnancy assistance centers across the center. There's more pregnancy assistance centers in this country than there are abortion clinics. We're there to help them, and I'm glad that they are, and that's why we support them. 
Well, I really appreciate you, Dr. Levitino. Um, before we go, just want to tell you guys about Gravity Jack. It's a full-service digital agency specializing in the development of virtual and augmented reality experiences, mobile apps, blockchain, Web3 projects. Founded in 2009 as the first American agency offer augmented reality they even patented it gravity jacks digital experiences have been a source of innovation for small businesses fortune 500 companies and the u.s military get your vision in motion today at gravityjack.com i wonder what kind of cool stuff they could do for the pro-life movement yeah, you know what right? i mean i yeah, wonder yeah, that would be really true. interesting to show, show, the, show the yeah the, their babies oh, that, that'd be something be awesome. we talk about cool. yeah you know Doc, the thing Doc. that struck me about dr lavatino dr anthony's Levantino? Um, story is yeah. is mothers yeah. Mothers yeah. changed his life. Yeah. Uh, good point. Yeah. Right? A bunch of yeah. mothers gave him Jesus. Mothers yeah. met him in the waiting room. Mm. You know? Mothers. Doc, that's, that's really good. How can people keep track of what you're doing and follow you? Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, uh you know, people always say, oh, I love what you put on the internet. My wife and I have never put a thing on the internet. Um, so, <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Well, we'll just have to Google and see what pops up. <laughs> Thank you for coming on the show. Appreciate you very much. If you're single, get married. If you're married, have you some kids. And if you have kids, go baptize them. Until next time, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Go fight, laugh, and feast. This is Cross Politics. Wow. My name is Jamie Piles. I joined Samaritan in December of 1996. We were homeschooling our kids, and we were already thinking outside the world's box, if you will. And I saw a little tiny classified ad about this new kind of idea I'd never heard of before. My first reaction was, that's the kind of thing that we would do, isn't it? And so I finally called the number, talked to them, and the more I asked them questions, the more I liked their answers.